We're in this series on the prodigal son, and we are at that point where the story and the message is about turning back. There is a lone marker located on a gentle slope within the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. Beneath the sod are buried more than 400 of the 912 people who died at Jonestown, Guyana. This year marks the 35th anniversary of that tragedy under the leadership of one Jim Jones. You may not know this, but Jim Jones was at one time a local minister in Indianapolis before moving to California to build one of the most notorious cults in American history. A self-proclaimed Messiah, he established the People's Temple and claimed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. When he moved his group to Guyana to escape some of the things that were going on in the States, and then news began to filter back about such things as abuse or captivity or enslavement, California Representative uh, Leo Ryan took a team down to investigate, and he confronted Jones and the, and, and the Jonestown people, and, and he told Jones that he was about to blow the whistle on what was going on down there, and so as they traveled back to the little airport to fly home, Jones sent a hit team, and uh, they assassinated Congressman Ryan and several others. That then precipitated the mass suicide. Everyone was forced to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid there at Jonestown. Only after a handful, uh, only a handful were able to escape into the w jungle around there that later were saved, and it is their story that corroborates what we know was taking place there. November of 1978, 35 years ago, and it still rings in the memory. We look at such a tragic loss of life and wonder how thinking people could be so naive or so easily conned or so easily duped. I mean, Jonestown is a graphic reminder of this truth. Beliefs have consequences. What you claim to believe really matters. Who you trust might just make the difference between life and death. I like the way that author Lee Strobel puts it. Faith is only as good as the one in whom it is invested. When the greener pastures of a distant country dried up and died, the prodigal remembered the one who was worthy of his faith and trust. His mind replayed the good memories of life on the farm and a father who, despite their differences, could certainly be trusted. While the prodigal certainly lost track of his father, he never lost faith in his father's goodness. Faith is such a stumbling block to people today, I, and I, I really don't get it. I mean, after all, we live every day with an element of faith. If you get up tomorrow morning and you have medicine that you, you take, prescription medicine that you take, you're, you are, first of all, putting faith in your physician that he or she has understood your condition and has prescribed the right medication. You've also put your faith in the pharmacist that he or she put the right pill in the bottle. You also have faith in the pharmaceutical company that they've kept their standards up and their production assembly free from contamination. All of that, every day you take a pill, that's the way it is. 
if your doctor was treating you for some specific disease or condition, would you say, ah, just give me something cheap, doc, any old pill will do, they're all the same anyway? Of course not. You know that each one is specific to a, a problem or an issue or a disease. And, and so you want the right ones. It, it's a step of faith every time you take medicine. When you slide in behind the wheel of your car, it's a journey of faith. Have you ever seen the way people drive? I mean, come on, it's a journey of faith. Some people drive while they're talking on the cell phone and they're laughing and you know they aren't paying attention to where they're going. Some people are putting on makeup. Some are checking their email while they're cruising at 60 mile an hour down the road. Some are sending texts even as they approach intersections. You name it, and we are crazy drivers. And yet, in just a few minutes, everybody's going to pile out of this place. We're going to get in our cars and drive out of here, and not one of us is going to think about it being a journey of faith. The list is endless. Eating in a restaurant without knowing how clean the kitchen is. Boarding an aircraft that you're going to fly across the ocean. Buying something online and giving them your credit card number. That's a step of faith. But let someone say, I trust Jesus with my spiritual life, and people become incredulous. Oh, faith is a spiritual crutch, or faith is for the intellectually weak, or faith is okay for children but not for adults, and on that list goes. Now, I know some people think, well, how can you say that, that the people who had faith in Jim Jones were conned and duped, but people who have faith in Jesus Christ are to be commended? How do you make that kind of a judgment call? Let me take you back to the statement. Faith is only as good as the one in whom it is invested. You've got to know where your faith rests. I wish, folks, I wish we had time today to explore the reasons why we believe in Jesus Christ. I, I want you to know, I believe in him with all of my heart. Um, some of you think, well, yeah, you, you preach for a living. It's your job. you got to believe. Well, I do preach as a career, but... Can I tell you, I do not preach and minister to have a job. I'm convinced I could earn a living in several noble fields of endeavor. That's not why I preach. I preach because I believe with all of my heart that leaning on Jesus, learning to trust him, learning to put my faith in him is paramount in our lives. Without him, any endeavor in this life, no matter how valuable, ultimately becomes pointless. Without Christ, the most skilled surgeon can only extend life for a time. Without Christ, the most gifted financial expert can only provide riches for this world. Without Christ, the most prestigious education can only deliver partial truth. I've preached five funerals in the last four weeks, and every time when I stood with the family next to the casket of the person they loved, only one thing mattered. It was whether or not their loved one, who was now separated from them, knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because that was the only thing that could give them hope in that hour. I want you to know why you believe. I don't want you to believe just because your parents did and your grandparents did. That may be what got you into the kingdom to start. But it isn't what holds you in the kingdom, and it certainly isn't what enables your faith. 
I'm currently going through Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Real Jesus. May I suggest that if you're struggling with any of your doubts or your faith or your beliefs, can I suggest that you start reading some of these great resources to, to discover why you believe and why you should trust Jesus Christ? Anything that Lee's written along this line is, is really good. The, the case for faith, the case for Christ, the case for the Creator, the case for the real Jesus, great stuff. There are other great authors out there too. Gary Habermas, The Historical Jesus is one that he's written. Or Why Believe God Exists is another one. Norman Geisler has written a great book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. C.S. Lewis and his classic work, Mere Christianity. And you say, are there more? Yes, there are more. When you get done reading these, I will give you more, all right? Start studying. And here's why, folks. Never in my lifetime has the concept of faith in Jesus Christ come under quite as much scrutiny and skepticism and fire as it is right now. And if you don't know why you believe, people are going to come with tough questions that you may not be able to answer. You're going to be backed into a corner and you're going to feel defeated. What's more, you may feel doubt. Now, there is nothing wrong with doubt as long as you try to find an honest answer for the doubt. So I'm suggesting, do your homework. Start learning now because you may help somebody else through their doubts. Remember that the book of James tells us that the demons believe and tremble and they don't have faith. So there's more to faith than just believing. But you got to start with the belief. And to that, then you add this element of trust. You see, the prodigal, didn't, he didn't struggle with belief. He knew his dad. He knew what his dad was like. He knew what the farm was like. He didn't have any trouble with belief. It was a matter of trust. It wasn't until he could trust again that he was able to return. And do you know when that moment occurred with the prodigal? It's in chapter 15, verse 17, and it's, it's not even the whole verse. It's just a simple little phrase. And yet it is the most pivotal words in the story. They are these. When he came to his senses, there it is, so simple and yet so profound. And while that statement represents a moment in time, it took a lot of time to reach that moment of repentance. And could there be a better description of repentance? When he came to his senses, when his brain finally woke up, for the first time since leaving home, he took an honest look at himself, and what he saw wasn't pretty. He had abandoned the one place, the one place he could really call home. He had turned his back on the only ones who loved him for who he was, not for what he had in his pockets. He had frittered away his entire inheritance and had absolutely nothing left to show for it. He had scrounged up the most disgusting job imaginable and was thankful to have it. And he looked at what the pigs were eating and determined they had more to eat than he did. And he came to his senses. You see, repentance is becoming exasperated with your circumstances and changing direction. The other day, I was having a discussion with our three-year-old granddaughter, Addie, about strawberry jam. She wanted me to put it in a bowl so she could eat it with a spoon. 
I wanted her to eat it on toast. I said, it, it should go on toast. If you eat it out of a bowl with a spoon, it's so sweet, it'll make you sick. And we went back and forth. And finally, after a few exchanges, she threw up her hands like this and she said, that's it. And she walked out of the room. <laughs> that's what happened in the pig pen. The prodigal son finally threw up his arms and said, that's it. Enough is enough. I cannot do this anymore. I cannot keep living this way. A change is needed, a drastic, humiliating, groveling kind of change. The choice was clear. Nobody else could make the decision. Nobody else had gotten him into this mess. This was all on his shoulders. He set his course for a new direction. He fed the pigs for the very last time, got up out of the pig pen, turned around, and found his way home. You say, what's the big deal about repentance? Well, let me answer that question with the conclusion of Paul's sermons to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Beginning in verse 29, it says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says, through the risen Christ, God calls us to a change of life. In light of the fact that there is a day set in, in the future when God will judge us with justice, now is the time to understand the necessity of repentance. May, may I suggest to you this morning that repentance is the flip side of the coin we call faith. It, it's not just enough to believe and trust. You know, that, that, that's where it starts. You've got to repent. Now, you'll not repent until you believe in him, until you begin to trust him. But if you stop at the faith level, if you, if you don't turn your life around, if, if there isn't that change that takes place, that 180, then faith isn't real either, and it isn't lived out. Like faith, repentance is vital to our relationship with the Lord. When you truly trust Him, you will want to make the changes that make you like Him. Let, let, let me see if I can give you some thoughts on repentance before you leave this morning. There's a lot of misunderstanding about repentance out there today. And so if, if you've thought of some of these, let, let me just point them out that they are misunderstandings. Repentance is not being sorry that you got caught okay? Because people who are sorry that they get caught, if given the chance again with the assurance that they wouldn't get caught, would do the same thing all over again. That's not repentance. Repentance is not just a feeling. I feel guilty. I feel sad. I feel ashamed. I feel sorry. Now, that's all good. It's good to feel that way, but if that's where it stops, that's not repentance. Dennis the Menace is kneeling by his bedside in the cartoon and praying, God, I'm sorry, but I've got a lot of I'm sorry's for you tonight. We have a lot of I'm sorry's for you, but if it doesn't get any farther than I'm sorry, it's not true repentance. Feeling remorseful is not equivalent to being repentant. And repentance is not an attempt to avoid the anger of God. You know, kids will do all kinds of things to avoid their parents' displeasure. 
They may tell a white lie. They may go hide. They may run out of the room. They may just pretend that the deed never happened, thinking that if they pretend it didn't happen, mom and dad won't be the wiser. But adults do the very same thing with God. When we are unrepentant, we run away. We stay away from church. We stop praying. We quit reading our Bibles. And we wrongly conclude that if we pretend there's nothing wrong in our life, then God won't be the wiser. But I'm here to tell you God always sees. We just don't always see him. We just don't always hear his clarion call. After an extremely exhausting day of parenting, Alice finally had her kids in bed, and she put on her old grubby sweats, and she washed her hair, had it all tied up in a towel, and she was in the process of taking off her makeup, had her face covered with cleanser creams, and, and the kids were just getting louder, louder, louder. Finally, she'd had it. Her, her last nerve was gone. She stormed down to the bedroom, threw open the door, shouted to the kids that they should be quiet and go to sleep, slammed the door on the way out, and the three-year-old looked at the older siblings and said, who was that? Now, sometimes when we get rambunctious in our life, when we get way out there on the edge, God calls us back, and it's been so long that we looked at what the Word says, and we said, who is that? We've stopped recognizing God. Now, folks, we are forced to deal with our guilt. So you, you can do it one of two ways. You can either repent and seek God's forgiveness, or you can pretend that you have no sin, that you have nothing for which to feel guilty, and you can suppress it, and you can push it down, and you can put it in the recesses of your mind, but I'm here to tell you, it will come back to haunt you. There is only one way to deal with the guilt, and that is to confess it before God, to change and turn your life around so that he can give you new life. Let me describe what repentance is. Repentance is an about-face if you've ever served in the military or a marching band, then you know what an about-face is. If you're a pilot, then you know what a 180 is. If you're a wife, then you know what your husband should do when he's driving lost. Turn the car around and ask for directions. That's a pretty good description of repentance. Turn your life around and ask God for directions. You see, repentance is a change. It's a change of direction. It's a change of mind, first of all. You have to start thinking like God, not thinking like the world. It's a mental about-face. Repentance is a change of heart. It's deep sorrow that leads to a desire to be different. It's an emotional about-face. But those two alone won't cut it. There's two more you need to be aware of. And the third one is repentance is a change of our will. Now, here's the problem. The, the young man in the pig pen, the prodigal, he had a change of mind. I don't know how long he'd been thinking, this isn't good. And I think he was, he was emotionally distraught over this. You know, I don't even have enough to eat the pigs eat. But it wasn't until it became a willful choice that it became repentance. And then fourthly, repentance is a change of behavior. You can think all you want, but until the thinking leads to a change of actions and deeds and behavior, repentance isn't complete. Unless each one of these lives is totally surrendered, mind, emotions, will, and behavior, true repentance cannot happen. It's like pumping a corpse full of embalming chemicals to make it look alive. No matter how hard you try, folks, 
death still brings decay. Sin brings death, and without repentance, spiritual decay is inevitable. No matter how nice the corpse looks, it's still a corpse. And without repentance, that's what you have living in your soul. Here's the last thing, and that is we've got to learn how to live repentantly. I read about a couple recently who were evicted from their apartment because not once during nearly a year had they bothered to take out the trash. The stench and the filth was not only overpowering in their apartment, but it was affecting and impacting everybody up and down the hall in the whole building. The property management company filled a 40-foot dumpster just cleaning out the trash of their apartment. Can you imagine living in a place where you never took out the trash that the bags just filled up in your home? For the follower of Christ, regular acknowledgement of our sin and genuine repentance is like taking out the trash. When you neglect it, the stench and the filth builds up and everyone around you is impacted. So let me ask you, how long has it been since you took out the trash? Here and here. You might be surprised at the trash that's cluttering up your life. Gossip garbage, jealous junk, the refuse of rage and uncontrolled anger. Is your mind littered with sensual thoughts, lustful longings, or pornographic pictures? Is your heart soiled with the rubbish of resentment, bitterness, and envy? Have you been spoiled by always getting your own way? Have you been storing up the debris of dishonest behavior? Is your soul a compost heap of spiritual decay and rot? Then make the tough choice. It's not an easy choice. Make the tough choice. Clean it up. Do what is right. Honor God and obey His Word. I don't have to stand here and tell you what's right. You know what's right in your heart of hearts. But it's not about knowing what is right. It's about doing what is right that makes the difference and counts. So I'm telling you this morning, set the bar high. Be the one who shines brightest. Be an example worth following. Anybody can be mediocre and ordinary. You be extraordinary. Anybody can follow the crowd. You follow the Christ. Stay away from people, places, and possessions that will trash your character and integrity. Repentance isn't easy. But the end result is pretty sweet. Addie came back and tried the toast with the strawberry jam on it and liked it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she ate every bite of that toast with the strawberry jam on it. You see, the end result of turning around and coming back can really be sweet. Do you think it was easy for the prodigal to, to, to make that choice in that pig pen to say, I'm wrong? i got to turn around and change things. Is it easy for you to say, I'm wrong? Because I'm here to tell you, it is not easy for me to say I'm wrong. That's hard stuff. But God calls us to the tough choices and the tough decisions. Repentance leads to God's forgiveness. And God's forgiveness leads to a life free from the garbage of guilt and shame. And I'm here to tell you, there's nothing sweeter than that. That's your choice, of course. Nobody made the prodigal get up and go home. And God will not force you to repent. But trust me, 
if you don't get rid of the trash, it'll come back to bite you. Gary Richmond, who at one point in his life worked for a zoo, writes about the job he dreaded most twice a year. It was when they had to take the big king cobra out of its cage. It was a 13-foot-long king cobra so that the zoo vet could surgically remove the skin that had not come off in the shedding process. He said it took five strong men to hold that snake. He said the, cur the, the zoo's curator's job was to hold the snake behind the neck. All right, so the head could not swivel around and bite anybody. And it was Gary's job to take a wad of paper towel and stuff it into the cobra's mouth so the cobra would chew on it and empty out the venom sacs that were in its head. He asked why he had to do that. Why did the venom have to be drained? And the curator said, a man could never survive a bite from a full load of venom. And then he went on to say, my hands are sweaty and my fingers are cramping under the strain of this snake's power. When I let him go, it may not be quick enough. More people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them. You get too weak under the snake's power. There are a lot of things in life that are that way, easy to grab, painful, deadly to let go. So think twice before you reach out and take hold of sin. Sin is always easy to grab, but painful to release. Nothing in this world is worth the price of your soul, and the venomous bite of sin will destroy you without a Savior. Author William Alexander wrote, he said, if you were doomed to live the same life over and over again for eternity, would you choose the life you are now living? The question he goes on to say is interesting enough, but I've always thought the point of asking it is really the unspoken, potentially devastating follow-up question, and that is, if you answered no, then why are you still living the life that you're living now? Stop making excuses and do something about it. Isn't it that simple? If you, if you were living, the life you're living now, if you had to live it for, the, for, for all eternity like this, would, would you want it? And if you said, well, no, I wouldn't want it this way, well, then why are you living it this way? You've got a chance to change. And that change comes through knowing Jesus Christ. The prodigal did that. There in the pig pen, he had an epiphany. He got up, turned around, and found his way home. Beliefs do have consequences. Faith is only as good as the one in whom it is invested. Unfortunately, some of you are still stuck in the mud and feeding pigs. What's keeping you from turning back? Huh? What's keeping you from turning back to Jesus?